0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined today by the two beating hearts of Deep State Radio. Corey Shockey <laughs> who runs both the foreign affairs and defense programs at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, hi, Corey.
1: Hello, David.
0: And Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. Hello, Rosa.
2: Hello, David.
0: So, here we are in the aftermath of the Soleimani um, attack, and then the um, tensions that followed the Soleimani attack, and then about sort of halfway through last week, those seemed to abate. Um, um, but things lingered on. You know, some issues lingered on as as one might have expected that they would, um, uh, including. Uh, <clears throat> um small, small um debates over things like why we did it and why the president said we did it, then why the president's advisors said we did what we did. Um um and by we I mean the United States. And um and then also uh, the 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 Iraqi government asked us to leave and we said, you know what? No, pay us more to stay, which was an interesting twist. Um um, and so um, I'm, you know, just going to start with you know, Corey. How do you, how do you think we're doing on the first big crisis of twenty twenty, of the twenties, even?
1: Uh, I would give us um, a C minus uh, for it. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Kasim Suleimani was a bad guy, and that it's justified. Um, to target him, but uh, several related things. First, uh, if our country is going to get into the business of doing targeted strike assassinations, I feel like um, the president ought to have signaled that policy change and uh, consulted the Congress about it, consulted the White House counsel and national security lawyers about it, prepared the American public for this, told our allies we were about to do this so that uh, those countries that have forces fighting side by side with us would have a plan to both align their policies and protect their forces um, It would have been a really beautiful thing if we had prepared the international community, for example, uh, arguing to enforce the UN Security Council's travel ban on Qasem Soleimani instead of letting him travel freely and then killing him. There were ways short of killing him that could have restricted his effectiveness. And third, my preferred strategy rather than having killed Soleimani, although, as I said, it was justified. Um, I'm a huge fan of the former TV series, Justified. And one of the things that always comes out in that wonderful Western is the fact that Justified isn't the same thing as the best choice available under those circumstances. And and I worry that the choice that we made, especially without the proper preparation, and especially since it turns out from um, subsequent reporting uh, that the president made the determination six or seven months ago to target Soleimani, we had lots of opportunities to align diplomatic and economic and international institutional measures in ways that strengthened our case for doing it, that got us more of the gains available to us for doing it, and might not have cost us things like the NATO training mission in Iraq, the presence of American forces in Iraq by sufferance of that government, and might have helped save Iraqi lives when Iraqi bases on which American soldiers are stationed have been targeted.
0: Well, I don't know about you, Rosa, but this senior voice from the typically right-leaning American Enterprise Institute sounds very sensible to me, and and wise.
1: I object to the notion that uh, <laughs> otherwise sensible conservative voices otherwise conservative voices don't sound sensible.
2: I object to that, David.
0: Um, well, um, <laughs> I was just part
2: of our ongoing effort. To pry you out of the Republican Party. <laughs>
0: um, I, I, I was just trying to say I agreed with you, but you know
2: uh, well,
0: go 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 on, Rosa.
2: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think there are there are a lot of different issues to unpack. Um, one of the things that i I think it is worth saying, and I, I I keep saying this, and all my Obama administration friends get annoyed at me for saying this, um, I find it a little hypocritical, all the all the criticism of the Soleimani strike um, on legal grounds, because the Obama administration also played really fast and loose, both with the authorization to use military force, both the 2001 uh, AUMF and the 2002 AUMF, which was specific to Iraq, um, and bent and twisted and you know beat those aumFs completely out of shape in order to justify the use of force um, the Obama administration similarly played fast and loose in a, in a really alarming orwellian way with the uh, concept of imminence um, defining it in a way that rendered it essentially meaningless and 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 some of the very things in fact that the trump administration is is now being criticized for and and we're right to criticize them um, but were, by with some of the stuff we've seen coming out, for instance, has been well, it was imminent, meaning you know maybe weeks, who knows? Well, you know there were sort of ongoing things being planned. Well, no, we can't point to anything specific, or where it might be, or what the target was, but we kind of know that this is just what Salamani did. He sat around thinking of attacks against the U.S. and our interests, and so that counts as imminent. You know, that's obviously garbage in terms of any standard understanding of the word imminent, but it's also the understanding of the word imminent that the Obama administration's uh, Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel uh, came up with. Um, very, very similar language in a, in a memo uh, that was first leaked and then ultimately released uh, after a court required it. Um, I think it was from 2012, although I would have to check the date on that. Um, so, so we... What the Trump administration is doing from a legal perspective, in with the exception of the fact that Soleimani was was uh, a senior military official of a state rather than a non-state actor, with that exception, it's pretty much identical uh, to the types of decisions made and types of extremely dubious legal arguments made by the Obama administration. And, you know, I and many others criticize the Obama administration for... Uh, really reckless uh, misuse of legal concepts and the standard response from Obama administration officials and, and defenders was, oh, no, no, you don't understand. We we take your point that, yes, this is certainly a, you know, we see how this is kind of a broad definition of imminence or oh, don't even get me started on the War Powers Act, uh, it's a whole other other can of worms. But you know, we see how you might think that this opens the door to all these bad things, but don't worry, we have this very robust internal process. We would never, we would never do these irresponsible things you're saying that our legal theories might allow us to do. Um, the problem was, of course, as as many of us said at the time, was you know, any safeguard that just rests upon trust us, we promise we're really responsible people, is a pretty thin safeguard. And sure enough, Obama leaves office, we get Donald Trump instead, uh, and now we have no safeguard at all. So so we are reaping what we sowed. Um, And I I do think it's important to say that. Um, That's not the same as saying, oh, therefore it's fine because the Obama administration made similar legal arguments, but I think it is really important to acknowledge that the very same morally and intellectually bankrupt legal arguments we're seeing today from the Trump administration were were made and in some cases pioneered uh, by lawyers in the Obama administration. You know that said, it's a huge escalation to decide to uh, strike a state actor as opposed to a non-state actor. And the irony of this, of course, how did Iran start off being a pariah state as far as the u s. was concerned? Well, they violated a a really core principle of international law, uh, which has to do with diplomatic, Immunities and protections by allowing, you know, the storming of the U.S. embassy and taking of diplomats as hostages. Uh, even just last week, we were we were busy decrying uh, Iran's brief detention of the British ambassador in Tehran as a violation of norms about diplomatic immunity. Well, another really important norm, international legal norm, um, is that although states may have wars against each other. They don't target one another senior political and military officials um, because, it, you know, the same reasons we respect diplomatic immunity—that you get total chaos and a dangerous potential for increased conflict between states if you suddenly say, you know, yeah, not only do we not like what you're doing, Iran, not only are we even potentially going to have military action against some of your people, but we're going to start trying to assassinate your officials. And, you know, that's why we have a ban, an executive order ban on political assassinations in this country. So so uh, no question that the Trump administration is not only making uh, good use of the legal tools that the Bush and Obama administrations put before them, uh, but has upped the ante now in a really dangerous way by going after a senior state official.
0: You know, because I'm a foreign policy professional, every time somebody talks to me about a norm being violated, <laughs> I think of cheers and the norm in cheers. Um,
2: <laughs> oh, David, I do not want that visual. No, I agree. That I thought about that for about one second and then I thought, oh no. Well,
0: I did There didn't. are some
2: norms that should not be violated, as
0: we That's, say. It, right, well, there's a norm that should never be violated. At least we yeah. can all agree on that. Um, you know, uh, Corey, even today, the day we're recording this, Monday, um, there have been, uh, you know, new groundbreaking insights into this whole issue. Uh, the president, of course, starting out by tweeting that the attack was not imminent. Um, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> <really> not doing <laughs> okay, today.
1: that's actually not true, right? <laughs> right.
0: Um, he then quickly said it's not imminent. But the second half, you know, and of course, you know, Twitter being the, you know, people call it a hellscape. I don't think it's a hellscape. It's just incredibly annoying. The, the incredibly annoying dimension of Twitter immediately joked all about, oh, he's an idiot. He said imminent, not imminent. The second half of the tweet said none of this matters because he was so horrible, which put forth the presidential doctrine that the president of the United States can kill anybody who's horrible. You know, has been horrible in the past, um, which I think is overreach. Uh, just to add to this before you offer a comment, uh, the Attorney General of the United States, the leading uh, voice on what is good and right and just in the universe, said uh, the issue of imminence is a red herring, um, uh, which, uh, of course, is the wrong conclusion, but but that's what he does for a living. Um, and so... I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, wondering if you have anything to add to what Rosa said, or to what Trump tweeted, or what Barr said uh, on this issue before we move on.
1: So the reason we care about international law isn't so that we can regulate our relationship with our friends, right? The the bonds of affection and mutual respect do that among friends the reason for international law is to create some sort of predictability uh, to to, um, prevent miscalculation, or at least to penalize miscalculation, and also to regulate the behavior between enemies. And that's where this business about imminence matters, because... It's actually in the United States interest to have a robust legal code internationally that helps us penalize transgressors of predictable behavior, especially towards the United States and our friends. Um, And so where I think the senior uh, legal counsel in the American government is mistaken, is in thinking that we're not the main beneficiaries of a predictable international order. We're the country most connected to the global economy. We're the country that operates military forces most out in the world as the rule setter and guarantor of the international order. So we're big beneficiaries of international law, and it is one of the most... Um, puzzling mistakes of the Trump administration for me that so many senior figures in it, including the senior legal counsel, seem not to understand that really basic fact.
0: Um, well, I take some comfort from the parts of the law they don't understand because the parts that I have more trouble with are the ones that they understand and they break anyway. Um, <laughs> and you know one of the areas where the law is clear, as as day, and everybody understands it, um, is that foreign countries can't take up residence or install their troops in another country without the permission of that country. Supposedly, they do it at the request of, of, of that country. And Rosa, the United States, uh, has had troops in Iraq for a long, long time, ostensibly for our mutual benefit. But shortly after Soleimani was killed, the Iraqi parliament said, no, you should leave. Then we got into a bit of a kerfuffle as the Department of Defense last Monday when we were even recording the episode. um, By the way,
1: how wonderful was that? That poor lieutenant colonel who drafted an anticipatory letter.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: well,
0: but, but drafted a letter and and you know the iraqis say they received it did they not receive it it was signed it was not signed it was in arabic and english it was not you know the president said he didn't know about it the secretary of defense said he didn't know about it then they you know they said we are not um leaving uh, but you know there were a bunch of weasel words in that right now etc cetera, etc cetera. and then the iraqis you know, responded, and they said, you know, we'd really like to have a meeting with you to discuss your leaving. At which point, uh, this Department of Defense put its foot down a little bit further and said, no, we we're not leaving. And then sent out a message that said, you know, in fact, not only are we not leaving, but you guys better pay us more to stay, um, which is a fascinating negotiating tactic. Um, and. Right now, we're in a bit of limbo about this. There are rumors that the United States is going to draw down and redeploy, and but that there will be some force left there. Um, there seems to be some clarity from most Iraqis, which is that they would like the U.S. to go. Um, this is another issue of international law, which calls for your uh, perspectives. Rosa? want to start on it
2: (laughs) well yes so you're you're certainly right david that a you know core principle of sovereignty is that you you can't stick your troops in somebody else's country without their without their permission um i think what does make this one legally speaking a little bit more complicated and 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 you know i have to say at the outset i am not an expert on iraqi domestic law um but my understanding is that uh the vote of the Iraqi, the Iraqi Parliament doesn't really have any particular say over this, at least through the type of vote that they took uh, last week. So it's my my understanding, and again, uh, if there's someone, someone, one of our listeners has more expertise on domestic Iraqi law, I hope they'll correct us by tweet um, that this is basically the the Iraqi analog to, for instance, what has just happened in this country, which is the. House of Representatives passing a resolution saying that Trump shouldn't use force against Iran without congressional authorization, which is to say it's, on the one hand, it's a clear expression of the views of the elected representatives. uh, But on the other hand, it's not binding on the president in its current form, at least not in a direct way. Um, And I, so so anyway, the long story short, um, the question that always arises in international law when you have um, you know you have a a government of a country that has a judiciary, it has a a parliament or or House of Representatives of Congress of some sort, it has an executive is well who actually has the authority to invite you to come in or tell you that you have to leave? Um, and it doesn't seem to be the case that the Iraqi Parliament, at least in this current, Form of this resolution actually has that authority. It would have to be, uh, you know, it would have to be the or ex- executive branch at this point, at least. So there is some ambiguity, um, just as there is in this country about, you know, precisely the status of a vote like that. What I think does go without saying um, is that our our welcome in Iraq, which has been uh, tenuous at best uh, for, you know, nearly two decades now. Um, Uh, just got even even cooler and more tenuous um, as a result of recent events and the you know you even if you technically have a legal basis to stay in a country where an increasingly large number of people uh, both political leaders and in the general population are pissed off and would like you to go uh, it makes it very hard for you to be effective um, even if you still have a legal basis to be there so so I think I think we're going to you know, this is going to be. We're going to have to work very, very hard to fix that badly damaged relationship with the Iraqi government if we want to keep troops there in the longer term. And I think, I think we obviously do at least want to keep some small number of troops there because of ongoing issues relating to ISIS, et cetera. Um, but it's going to take a lot of fence mending, and I'm, I'm very far from sure that this administration. Which has not shown much talent for fence mending, uh, is the one that's going to be able to do it.
0: Well, you know, if there were two people in the world that I would go to to have a baby cut in half, it would be the two of you, because you have <laughs> I don't this. Think that's a compliment. <laughs> <Take> <laughs>
1: that? <back>. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, I'm okay with that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes, <I am. laughs>
2: well, no, I. You know, the, the
0: Solomonic levels of wisdom here are very high. Um, solomonic but-
2: and yet not solomonic.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, David! Can we uh, create
1: a penalty for bad puns?
0: Yeah, I think we do, do should, but that is like at a super high level of bad pun. I mean, <laughs> I thought that's that was like pretty good. It's- <laughs> <laughs> Do, you? Do you? I'll have, to have discussion <laughs> off air about the fact that, you know, there is actually a disorder. There's a mental disorder where people can't help themselves from punning like that.
2: Um, <laughs> my father
0: has that. that uh, yeah. God, are you listening? Yeah. My, no, my brother definitely has that. but And I'm sure he's not listening. But in any event, um, Corey, you know, when you earlier made your reference to Justified, um, um, you, you did. Cut uh, to the heart of the matter. You know, quite apart from what international law says, there's also a question of both what's right, and then there's a question of what's what's in the U.S. interest. So when it comes to this question of U.S. troops in Iraq, given our stakes in the region, given history, given recent history, and given what the Iraqis apparently want, what's the right thing to do? In this situation. Uh,
1: Now, with respect to the troops in Iraq, or you mean earlier,
0: uh, with respect to killing— okay. Going
1: forward. Um, So what I think the right thing to do is to have the secretary of state and the national security advisor and the American ambassador all quietly, privately uh, apologizing to the government— that we took military action without their knowledge or consent. Uh, And if it should turn out to be true that we had the government's consent, we should pretend that we didn't because part of the challenge of being the hegemon of the international order is uh, doing the hard stuff ourselves and making it easier on countries that don't have the wide margin of error that the United States does in operating in the international order. Uh, So we should apologize publicly, apologize privately. The second thing we should do is um, ask the Iraqi government um, what we can do to make our forces in country of greater assistance to them and uh, come up with a set of rules the Iraqis are comfortable with that we are actually going to abide by, because it's not just in the Iraqi government's interest that we're in Iraq, it's very much in our interests as well for managing the potential resurgence of ISIS, for assisting the government of Iraq in resisting Iranian influence, in ensuring that Sunni and Kurds in Iraq are treated consistent with the non-sectarian nature of the Iraqi constitution. One of the opportunities that I worry our killing of Soleimani might have impeded is the prospect for a non-sectarian future in Iraq. I thought it was striking that the president of Iraq, who is Kurdish, had managed to prevent a pro-Iranian successor as prime minister to the current pro-Iranian successor. That was a huge gain for all Iraqis. uh, And the precipitous choice that we took to kill Soleimani, I fear will have impeded that. So we ought to think clearly and carefully about how we assist non-sectarian political progress in Iraq and make that a priority. Uh, We ought to be asking a lot of help from uh, the other members of the UN Security Council, in particular from Britain and France, uh, for ways to dampen down the negative effects of the action we've taken. That is, how uh, how do we prevent this from legitimating or validating similar choices by the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans or other bad guys to go on a killing spree outside their own countries. Uh, And we ought to rely a lot less on economic sanctions generally because we're overinvested in that tool of American international power. And especially we shouldn't be publicly threatening the government of Iraq to refuse to allow them to clear oil sales in dollars through banks in the American financial system because it's actually in our interest that energy markets clear in dollars and the chinese and the russians and even america's european allies are looking to find ways to create payment vehicles that don't rely on the supremacy of the dollar and that's in our long-term interest to sustain that is the supremacy of the dollar how's that for a starter list david
0: I think that's a really good starter list. What did I miss? Um, Well, I don't know that that you missed anything in the situation right now. Of course, one of the things that we don't know is how the situation changes. And obviously, if our um, circumstances weaken with regard to Iran or any place else in the region, um, having weakened our position with the Iraqis is worse in that regard. Um, and of course, as we discussed last week, and as I wrote about last week on the Daily Beast, and one of the two columns that I wrote about for this, that wrote about on this subject, uh, the Chinese and the Russians are, you know, moving in um, uh, to take advantage of the void that's caused here, not the, necessarily the one that we, well, the, the one that's caused by US acting um, erratically, dangerously, and in a way that makes our allies uncomfortable. Um, one of the reasons that our allies and everybody else are uncomfortable, Rosa, and sort of a third dimension of all of this, um, is not, you know, the question of imminence is it, or isn't it? or or um, you know the the law of all of this, But the fact that the United States government, the President of the United States, has given loads of different reasons for taking this action because there was an imminent threat because there was a threat on four different embassies because, um, uh, uh, of you know all the bad things he'd done in his life because of this because of that, uh, and it got so bad that the Secretary of Defense ended up on a morning show on on Sunday just yesterday, um, where he said, "You know, uh, I didn't see any of the information about these four embassies and the imminence of this threat and so forth." Um, <laughs> well, you know,
1: I'm, I'm sorry that <laughs> took my breath away quite literally.
0: Yeah, well, it was quite a was quite a stunning uh, experience, although in Trump... <laughs> hey,
2: I just work here. Yeah,
0: well, in Trump era, you know, <laughs> that's, you know, um, what we expect. And, of course, you know, he went on to try to do, you know, his cleanup and, and, and defend what had been done all along. But, you know, does it, I mean, this comes up a lot, but in this case, in this part of the world... Uh, Does it matter that the president is obviously lying, Rosa?
2: Does it matter that the president is obviously lying? At this point, it doesn't really matter because everybody already knew he's always lying. Um, I mean, if this was the first evidence that he was a liar, it would be big and shocking. But I, I don't think this changes anything for any of our, either our allies or our adversaries who who. Have already had the the last you know two and a half years or whatever it is to to uh, learn um, that Donald Trump um, lies and doesn't make any particular sense and is basically you know will say anything so so I don't think this changes anything they already know this and and I I assume that you know after the I I assume that you know sort of like the uh, this was like the seven stages of grief here or something where, you know, Trump's elected and everybody, all of our allies think, well, you know, gee, he was kind of a wild guy on the campaign trail, but he'll probably be a normal president. And, and then, you know, you get, you get some evidence that he's not normal and you're in denial and you think, well, that was just this one time. I'm sure next time he'll be a normal president. And, you know, then you go through all the usual stages of rage and bargaining, but I think they've long ago moved to, Resignation or acceptance or whatever it may be, uh, and they have built into their own uh, strategies the assumption that the president of the United States of America is nuts and a liar. Um, so, for that reason, no, this is not going to change anything.
0: So, you know, I, I guess the the real question that the average listener, not to mention the average host of this podcast, is left with, is well, <laughs> this thing happened. It was, a, it was obviously a Complete screw up of planning, and there wasn't a lot of thought given to it. And and the, it, it, apparently, it's been out there for about seven months as a as an option. Um, and uh, and it was undertaken at this moment for a variety of reasons. Some one of which has, has got to be wag the dog, kind of distract from what's going on in Washington, or subconsciously or consciously. But but it does raise a question as we go forward in this year, we're about to go into an impeachment trial, but the impeachment trial is gonna be brief and it's gonna be followed by other trials, other revelations, other moments where the president's future is in doubt, including moments later this year where the president of the United States is gonna look and say, you know, the election's in a couple of months and I could lose that election. And if I lose that election, I'm going to start getting prosecuted for all sorts of things that have not been, you know, uh, areas of exposure in my past. Uh, I could end up in the slammer. What can I do to keep myself in power? And, you know, there's only so many, you know, free lunches you can give the farming community. Uh, It it raises the question of what other um, uh, dogs are to be wagged by the tail? How do you wag the dog? Well, you know... What other dogs are out there to be wagged um, that we ought to keep an eye on? You know, what what other kinds of developments are out there um, where where this kind of thing is likely to stir up? Or, or is this you know Exhibit A? I mean, are we likely mm-hmm. to have this as an ongoing source of tension uh, that is going to escalate and recede throughout th- throughout the year, Corey?
1: Uh, Yes, I think we're likely to see many more instances of the president. Um, uh, You know, Rich Lowry had a terrific piece uh, yesterday or so talking about how the president really does uh, meet uh, the Jacksonian tradition, which is he doesn't like nation building, he doesn't like actual wars, he likes military strikes that—that that, you know, a, a punch in the face, and then nothing else happens.
0: I like think get to that, the Jacksonian tradition of like shooting your opponents and. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so many other bad Jacksonian precedents that they could um, choose, but in this instance, um, you know, Rich Lowe is not the only person who recognized that the North Koreans, presumably others will also have recognized that the president benefits when he uh, can punch somebody in the face and walk away from it. The question is, why are people allowing him to get away with that? And the answer is they probably won't in future iterations. And so one thing, for example, the North Koreans may learn from the attack on Soleimani is that the United States is willing to reach into other people's territory and, and conduct targeted killings. And second of all, the president of the United States has no stomach for uh, rounds two and three of this, and that may affect their behavior by uh, having them it- increase the pr- the cost to the president in rounds two and three, that is no off-ramp if the United States does that. And that will make subsequent uh, wag the dog iterations, should they occur in the next year, even more dangerous and even more likely to escalate.
0: What do you think, Rosa? Is your dog gonna get wagged?
2: Um, My dog doesn't have a, a real tail. She just has sort of a little nub. Um, we hope she was born that way, but it's not totally clear. Um, um, so I really can't speak on her behalf. She has no no opinions about this. But um, I, I don't I don't know. I, I think I think we're entering a an, a very dangerous and very unpredictable period. Um, meaning the, the period of time uh, basically between now and the next inauguration day. In which you know there's there's an irony here. We used to debate uh, in both inside and outside of government. We used to debate things like the wisdom of um, international courts uh, or national courts, for that matter, you know, indicting heads of state um, and worry about whether it might give them a disincentive to allow a peaceful transition uh, from power because the second they step down, they would be find themselves in court. I never I never thought that uh, we would have to worry about that particular issue with regard to an American president. But I think we actually are in that situation where where the President knows that if he is just an ordinary citizen, particularly if there is a democratic administration, um, that the odds are in fact very, very high that he will find himself uh, indicted by multiple in multiple jurisdictions on on multiple different kinds of charges. And it gives him a strong incentive, in addition to his own craziness, which was a sort of a pre-existing condition here, obviously, uh, to not want to leave office if he can avoid it. And, you know, I I, he's always uh, made little jokes on the campaign trail about, you know, how the Nation owes him a third term because the impeachment proceedings are so mean and unfair and distracting that he's really entitled to a third term, uh, and the people really want him to stay for a third term. And wouldn't it be nice to have a president for life, just like other countries that have this? And I, you know, I I don't think we can afford to view this as just jest when you look at the increase in in uh, rhetoric about. Uh, you know the Republican framing of the impeachment proceedings is is as a coup. Um, you know that you're you're seeing increased signs both from actors within the government uh, using that language, like Trump himself, but also from you know private actors. And and no, I th- I think it I think that both on the foreign policy front and on the domestic front, it makes this a really dangerous moment uh, because it, it's I, I have no idea what Trump will do. But it is not particularly difficult to imagine a range of things that he, you know, ranging from various kinds of scary foreign entanglements or further strikes without thought that are intended to distract domestic audiences or enable him to claim emergency powers. You know, imagine what Donald Trump would do if, God forbid, there was another 9-11 type of uh, external terrorist attack. You know, imagine the claims about emergency powers of the executive branch that would likely be made by the Trump administration. You know, I think it would make the Bush administration uh, look extremely tame by comparison. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't have a specific concern about a specific conflict in a specific place, but I, I do think there's all kinds of reasons to uh, be fearful that something, maybe domestic, maybe not, uh, could happen for all the reasons that you've articulated.
0: Well, you know, one of the reasons that this is this concern is going to loom there for a while, Corey, is that the president really didn't pay much of a price for doing this as he did, which is to say, uh, without an effective planning process, without weighing the consequences properly, without operating within the letter of the law, um, without having a good communication strategy before, during, or after it, without consulting with allies, um, et cetera, except for apparently Israel beforehand, without consulting with the Congress beforehand. You know, roughly, you know, there's some polls that say that, you know, majority of people don't think he handled it well, but it has doesn't affect his approval rating at all, um, which, you know, I think from his perspective um, gives him a sense that, you know, this, you know, his base supports this, but there were a few rumblings from some people within the GOP, uh, ranging from, you know, uh, you know, odd opponents, from Matt, uh, gets to, Rand Paul, um, who were who were kind of against this, um, and it it does raise a question, if unlike in apparently domestic politics. There are places that the the that the GOP won't go, or at least that some people within the GOP won't go on foreign policy that somehow would constrain the president. Should I take some comfort from that? Oh,
1: David, I am probably the worst person in the country to ask about this because I stopped in February of 2016. Uh, I stopped at number 17 of the number of egregious infractions that I believed would make candidate Trump completely beyond the pale for election. So my track record is, is almost perfect. Ted Williams would be astonished at my batting average for having wrong what the American public would not stand for. Um, and it's continued to shock me that Republican members of Congress are uh, standing with the President on so many things that I think are damaging to conservative to principled conservatism and damaging to the Republican cause. So I wish I could say, yes, this is the moment. This is the Rubicon, but I. I fear I do not know. Do
0: you feel the Major League uh, Baseball was too easy on the Astros in 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 the in the cheating scandal? Uh,
1: I do not believe they were too easy on the Astros, but I very much hope that the Boston Red Sox, who appear to have engaged in similar activity, will likewise see their skipper bounced.
0: Excellent. Now we've finally got onto something.
1: (laughs) A crucial national security issue.
0: That I and everybody else can get behind, which turns me to Rosa's subject of expertise. If Harry and Meghan want to leave (laughs) England and move to Canada or the U.S. to follow Corey here, should we see that as a direct connection to Corey? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: I think it goes without saying, David, because really, um, when two things happen at the same time, it one one must assume that they are related and look at it. You know, Corey returns to the United States uh, mere, mere, you know, weeks later, uh, Harry and Meghan announced that they are uh, are are. Picking up sticks and and moving back themselves and
0: not only that but
2: Corey has inspired them to become financial financially independent by demonstrating that it is possible for grown adults to have jobs um, with so, a thirty million dollar stake from their parents. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I, I I absolutely think that we can we can thank Corey for for
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome for my service.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know. I I would follow you wherever you went. I was ready to move to England. I was like, okay, corey (laughs) has been there a while. It's time to move to England. But you're settling in. You like where you are. You like D.C. It's a great town. I do
1: like D.C. I think it gets a bad rap.
0: Well, the only problem with it is is the people. But other than the people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, the people are what make it so wonderful.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Of course, Rosa lives in Alexandria. So that's another.
2: That's true.
0: Which is very different. That's where where
2: the, where the cool people are.
0: Now, yeah, right. That's where Paul Manafort lived. Um, all right. Well, look, and Mike
2: Flynn and Mike Flynn, only, only the finest felons live here in Alexandria.
0: Yeah. Well, that's something, it's something to be proud of. Um, uh, well, look, guys. I, I I think this was actually a really interesting discussion of some of the. Core- David, I hear
2: approaching sirens. I'm a little concerned about you. Uh,
0: <laughs> here, here, here in New York City, if you don't hear approaching sirens, um, that you you start to worry. Like, what's wrong with what's what's wrong with the city right now? That
2: uh, the police are not
0: out 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 in force. Um, well, anyway, i you know next week I'll be down in in D.C. for the podcast, so that's that's exciting. Um, perhaps I will see you guys. Perhaps we will um, plan the plan the future um, uh, while I am down there in D.C. Uh, in the meantime, please join us all next uh, on Thursday uh, for the next episode of Deep State Radio, um, and um, you know go to thedsrnetwork.com and. Uh, download past episodes and other things that we're doing And uh, uh, keep an eye out for announcements of uh, upcoming uh, events And if you want to get uh, uh, alerts and and special opportunities to attend those events All you got to do is go to the dsrnetwork.com And where it says register at the beginning You just register, it doesn't cost anything You just put in your email And then we'll send you stuff about what we're doing directly right into your inbox, along with all the other spam you get. Um, uh, but but this is not spam. This is really, really good stuff from the deep state. And who doesn't want to get emails from the deep state? Um, so thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. And join us again soon here at the DSR Network.